Well, good morning. I have a word I'd like to, for us to think about for a minute. The word is surprise. <laughs> have you ever wondered what surprise really even is? You know, it could be for you that you were reading the bulletin this morning and you read that Joel Teague was going to be bringing God's word to us this morning. And then I walk up the stage and you're surprised. Or it could be like me last night when the decision was made at 7 o'clock that I would be filling in for Joel. Surprise, right? Well, the, the dictionary gives us a definition of surprise as a brief mental and psychological state, a startle response experienced by animals and humans as a result of an unexpected event. Surprise, you know, it can be good, it can be bad, that is, and it can be neutral, it can be moderate, it can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant, and, and it can be positive or it can be negative. Surprise can occur also at varying levels of intensity, ranging from very surprised, like one of my granddaughters, whenever she sees you with a present and bringing it to her, she actually goes into convulsion. She's so surprised and looks so forward to what, what is going to bring joy to her heart when she unwraps that present. Or perhaps sometimes things of little surprise. So there's varying degrees of this. Well, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 11. So I invite you to turn there with me. And if, if you were one of the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy that we're going to read, or perhaps you're one of the early readers of the book of Isaiah, or if you're not aware of the background that leads up to chapter 11, then I think as we go through this this morning, you will be surprised to see what happens. So a brief background as you're turning to chapter 11 of Isaiah to set the stage for us. Isaiah prophesied during the, the period of the divided kingdom between 739 B.C. and 686 B.C., directing the major thrust of his message to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, during this time, the nation had turned a deaf ear to the Lord, and they were offering meaningless sacrifice to God in the temple of Jerusalem, and they had committed injustices throughout the entire nation. The people of Judah had turned their backs on God, and they had actually alienated themselves from him, which created the need for Isaiah's pronouncement of judgment. I remember when I was a, a, a brand new believer, maybe six, eight months in the faith, I decided, well, I'm going to read Isaiah. And I started into it, and I just thought, wow, I was really surprised, you know, that, that people of God that, that God had, had chosen them, his chosen people, that they would turn out like they had turned out. And that, that then I was even surprised that God didn't just flick them off the planet like a little ant for their rebellion. That was a huge surprise to me to see that God would raise up a man such as Isaiah to then bring God's truth to this people. Surprise, right? Well, from the first chapter on, it's clear that the people had turned away from God. They'd failed in their responsibility as his children. This once great nation of Israel, the nation God had brought out of the land of Egypt, has now fallen into demise. They're now a desolate, desolate nation. In chapter 3, we see this judgment 
that God will cause a collapse of their government and their economy as they knew it. This once great nation now lies in ruin. And the more you read, the more frightening it becomes. Fast forward to chapter 10, and we see God making use of a proud and cruel nation to bring punishment upon his people. This massive empire of Assyria is now looming on the horizon. They're huffing and puffing with threats against Jerusalem. They're right there. They can annihilate them at any moment that they desire to. And we would expect to read next that Assyria would just crush them. They would crush Jerusalem. But instead, chapter 10 ends with God destroying Assyria. Surprise again, right? That kind of makes me scratch my head and say, what? What is God doing here? Well, what Assyria doesn't realize is that they are nothing more than a pawn in God's hand. They are nothing more than a puny little instrument in the hand of a mighty God. And surprise again, God himself will also judge them. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 12 says, So it will be that when the Lord has completed his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, listen to this, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Now, the word of judgment on Assyria comes to a climax in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Let's read that together. Verse 33 starts with the word behold. I like to think of that word in this context right there as look, right? Capital letters. Get my attention. Look, behold, the Lord, the God of hosts will lop off the bows with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. In verse 34, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. God himself has allowed Syria to come right up, as I said, to the gates of Jerusalem, and then he intervenes. Surprise on them. The fulfillment of this intervention is recorded in chapter 37. You can look at that later. Verse, well, let's look at that. Chapter 37, verses 36 through 38, and see the fulfillment of this. Isaiah 37, verse 36 reads. Just think of this. They're right on the brink, right on the brink. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck how many? One hundred and eighty five thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. You think that would get somebody's attention? One hundred eighty five thousand people gone just like that. Dead. Verse thirty seven. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adam, Adaramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Arat. Assyria will be destroyed, right? An interesting side note here, Isaiah often refers to forestry uh, imagery in his conveying glory, pride, self-sufficiency, and power. We read in 
chapter 1, verse 29, he talks of oaks, and 2.13 of cedars, and 6.13 of terebinth trees, and in 9.18 of forest. You know, I have to, again, kind of scratch my head and say, why this reference to trees? Well, often when I'm out in the woods, and those of you that know me know I spend a lot of time in the woods, I'm amazed at the grandeur of the giant oak trees of North Georgia. They are really very, very impressive trees towering above the earth. And I got to admit, I love trees. I love identifying them. I like studying them. I love to look at pictures of them. And I'd really, frankly, love someday to see the redwoods out west and had a trip planned in 2019, but this thing came along and uh, actually it was 2020 and this thing came along and canceled it and I had to cancel my trip. But uh, I, I just love trees. Maybe one day I'll get to see those redwoods. And one time when I was hunting here in North Georgia, in a mature hardwood forest, a storm blew in. And trees become even more impressive when storms blow in. They were swaying and banging together. Have you ever heard them click, clack together? That'll kind of make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And, and this brought great fear into my heart. I must admit, it brought sinful anxiety into my heart. It felt as if they would all come down at once and bury me. I was a very praying man as I hustled my dogs up and, and got back to the vehicle. Now, this fear was partially fueled by the fact that the year before my house was cut in half by a tornado and 12 trees landed on us. And, you know, I could just say, thank you, Lord, for basements. That was another surprise. Well, the lack of a great forest in the land around Judah would make this imagery frightening for, for the Israelites, right? As they brought, as, I'm sorry, as they thought about these towering trees coming upon them, they would be frightened. Picture in your mind that no matter the size of the trees, they are no match for a sovereign God, right? Think of a vast forest now completely mowed down. Nothing remains but jagged stumps, kind of like a, some of these areas around town. As you drive around, you see development, and they take an area that was solid woods, and within a couple of days, it's nothing but clean ground, right? A clear cut. But unlike the clear cut machines that they use today, and they are very impressive today, by the way. I don't know if you've seen them. You know, that used to be a guy out there with a chainsaw, you know, cutting a tree down and took forever and ever especially if it was a chainsaw like mine that needed to be sharpened every 10 minutes. But um, these guys would whack them down. Well, nowadays they got machines that do this. Have you all seen those? One machine comes up and it grabs the tree up at the top and holds onto it. And the little blade comes and cuts it right at the ground. That thing up here takes it and dumps it into a grinder. And and so I mean, within 30 seconds, the whole thing is gone. Well, God mowing down a whole forest is even quicker than that. Picture that in your mind. And clear cuts, you know, when you drive by them, frankly, they're ugly. They're just ugly. And I imagine this scene of God tearing down Assyria, lopping them off, would be very, very ugly. Well, Isaiah continues his prophecy in chapter 11 and verse 1. Look at this. It says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, it's perplexing to me the way that chapter 10 flows right into chapter 11 seamlessly. 
It's as if chapter 10 would happen on Monday. These people are going to be mowed down and chapter 11 is going to happen on Tuesday. Just boom, boom. Well, read the last verse of chapter 10 and and the first of chapter 11 without a break, of course, because those weren't there originally. Verse 34 of chapter 10 says, He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Not even a hint here that this might be 700 years or even 2,700 years separating these events. What we have here is Isaiah using a literary device called prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening. He predicted the future events without outlining the exact sequence of the events or the time intervals separating them. It's like uh, comparing the way the prophets looked at the future. It's like the same way we may look at a mountain range with distant mountains. And, and the nearer the mountains come that into our view, it, it, it becomes apparent to us that this isn't just one mountain. It's a huge mountain range. For example, if we were to get in our cars and leave here and go north on 575 for about eight miles, you can see a beautiful scene of the Blue Ridge Mountains. One of my favorite scenes of all of North Georgia is right there on 575. Well, you couldn't see it today, so if you're going that way, don't look because it's cloudy. But if you go up there on a clear day, you can see this mountain. It's a beautiful picture of, of the mountains. And from the highway, it really just looks like one continuous mountain. Oh, it's so beautiful. I comment it every time I go up there. But if you start hiking, or in my case, driving, you'll find out quickly that this is not merely one mountain, but it's a series of mountains, ever higher ridges with valleys in between. And guess what? It extends all the way up to Pennsylvania. It's about 615 miles, the map says. Well, from where Isaiah stood, God granted him to see the end of the mountain range. God granted him the ability to see the future. He could see some of the nearer ridges, like the fall of the Assyrians, as well as beyond that to other events like the shoot springing from the stem of Jesse. With no idea, with no clear idea about how distant that event was. So we can look in chapter 7 and verse 14 and see a messianic hope. That, that, that Isaiah prophesied, he, he began to be, he began to express this messianic hope. We read these verses on Christmas Eve, 714 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This hope was amplified in chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in our text of chapter 11, we see this hope now coming into full bloom. 714, imagine this, chapter 7, verse 14 is like the greenery on a daffodil. You see, those are the first things that poke out in the spring, right? Really late winter, for that matter. The, the, the daffodil greenery pokes out of the ground in late winter, and we see it, and we know something is to follow. Chapter 9, verse 6 is like the bud that begins to develop on the daffodil greenery. And then, surprise, chapter 11 is the bud bursting open into the beautiful bloom of the daffodil. 
That's what we see here that Isaiah is doing. So let's read chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist." Well, as we saw, there will be a great destruction for Assyria. But, verse 1, then, after the destruction, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, Jesse, he was the father of King David. So we know that what Isaiah is prophesying here is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, that a son of David, a new shoot of Jesse, will come and rule the people of Israel and rule the world. Unlike the dead never to produce stump of Assyria, in the root of Jesse, there was yet life. From that stem, a branch was to come forth. And from the roots which furnished the stem with this life would grow and would derive its life from the root so that it might be Fruitful. Now, Isaiah, we've got to keep in mind, is not talking about outward prosperity here when he speaks of bearing fruit. He's not concerned with material welfare, but with something far, far more important. The fruitfulness that Isaiah is prophesying is of a spiritual nature, one that has to do with obedience to the Lord of creation. There will be once again a great ruler on the throne of David. On the throne, there will be a son of David, one who will himself embody all the ideals of the real Davidic kingdom. So at the outset, then, we are faced with the fact that the blessing about to be depicted, blessings, I should say, about to be depicted, are to be realized because of the shoot and the branch which which comes from Jesse's stem. Listen, this is Emmanuel. This is the true Messiah who is to be the hope of his people. So I want us this morning to observe two things. First, his divine endowment for ruling. His divine endowment for ruling. And we see this in verses 2 and 3, which read again, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Well, the first aspect of a divine endowment is that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So what does it mean that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him? There are several instances in the Old Testament of people being endued with the divine spirit in order to accomplish their task. The first time we see this is in relation to feats of skill and strength. I love that, by the way, that the first time in Scripture we see somebody being endued with the Spirit of the Lord, it has to do with skill 
and strength. I, I would think it would have to be knowledge, you know, but no, the first time is skill and strength. For guys like me, I like that. You know, a craftsmanship, a person that's skilled in craftsmanship is um, filled with the spirit of the Lord. And we see this in Exodus 31, 3, in the craftsmanship of, of Bezalel. It says, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. We see it in the might of Samson in Judges 14, 6. It reads, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Listen to this. So that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. Do you think there was strength involved there? You know, for those of you that uh, have ever butchered an animal, can you imagine? Bare hands. The spirit of the Lord did that. We see it referring to the capacity of leadership in the lives of both Saul and David as they were endued with the Spirit of God in order to accomplish their tasks. In 1 Samuel 10.10, we read, And when when they came to the hill there, behold, a group, group of prophets met him, listen, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And then in 1 Samuel 16.13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. One commentator said it this way, to say that God's Spirit was upon someone became almost a code phrase for saying that the person was acting out of a capacity which is more than merely human. Sadly, however, in the time of the Davidic kings, at this time, the Davidic kings, I should say, have been operating their lives without the spirit of the Lord. They're operating in what we might call a little s spirit, the spirit of self. They were fearful. They were weak. They were spineless kings. They were spiritually bankrupt, so much so that Isaiah testified that the palace was empty. Isaiah thirty-two fourteen because the palace has been abandoned The populated cities forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever. A delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for the flocks. But Isaiah saw a day when the big S spirit of God would, would be poured out on the branch. We know that at his first coming, it was said of Jesus, this would be true in John 1, 32 and 34. It reads, And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. And then in Luke chapter four, verses 18 and 19, Jesus himself Reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which was showing a clear claim that he was the Messiah. Jesus stands and reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Listen, this is not the spirit of prophecy. This is not just an influencing of the Spirit. But this, rather, is the person of the Spirit of the Lord. 
Kittle says this about the Spirit, quote, All that is good in Israel's life has been accomplished by the Spirit. He will endue others for their service and will come in greater measure upon the Messiah. The grammatical relationship of the words may be brought out in this translation. The Spirit of the Lord who is the Spirit, end quote. And John Calvin said, Isaiah does not mention all the gifts which were bestowed on Christ, for that was unnecessary, but only shows briefly that Christ came not empty-handed, but well-supplied with all gifts that he might enrich us with them. Enrich us with them. After telling us the Spirit will rest on, on him, Isaiah gives us three pairs of, of qualities of this Spirit. And the first is wisdom in understanding. Now, wisdom is the ability to render right decisions at the right time so that one may act in accordance with what is right. Aren't you grateful for wisdom? This word suggests that the branch also has the ability to rightly appraise situations and then to render right decisions in all matters. Not some, all matters. And then there's understanding. This refers to insight into the true nature of things, and this in particular as it has respect to the human heart. This is really important for us because Jesus said in John 2, 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, that, folks, is a divine endowment that no mere human has. We may think we can know what's on people's hearts. We may wish we could know what was on people's hearts. And we may even judge them thinking that we know what's on their hearts. But we can't. Only Christ can. So remember that one, right? Yes, you know, if we have the filling of the Spirit upon our salvation, we do have that. But that is not, this gift is not one of the gifts that he gives us. It was for the Messiah alone. Well, the second pair of qualities of the Spirit are counsel and strength. Now, counsel is the act of telling someone what they should do based on a plan or a scheme. Because of his divine wisdom that we've seen, he has and he can devise a a scheme and counsel that make all of his decisions correct. Well, along with counsel was strength. And this is simply the power to carry out his wise decisions. So these endowments remind us really of the beautiful names that we see of the Messiah again in chapter 9, verse 6. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Well, the third pair of qualities of the Spirit, as we see in our text here, are knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Knowledge, this is knowledge that has to do with the the content of the gifts as a whole, but it includes a lot more than that. Proverbs 1, 7 says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. There can be no knowledge of God, none, 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 Unless someone truly knows God. You might know about God, but there can be no true knowledge of God unless someone knows God. Because knowledge comes from God. To truly know God is the first principle, really, of true religion, we could say. We can be assured that the branch, as the branch, branch of Jesse, 
knew God like no other because he said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Son, what, except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, next we see is the fear of the Lord. Again, the fear of the Lord is the core of biblical religion. It involves a recognition of the absolute holiness of God. You know, for me personally, and I, maybe it's true of you, nothing melts sin quicker in my heart than reflecting on the key word here, absolute holiness of God, right? That shrinks me when I think of the absolute holiness of God. I really can't begin to even get my mind around those words. But it is, this is fear based upon the recognition of that holiness and coupled with a full reverence before God. The phrase itself is the practical equivalent of true piety and devotion. The Spirit produces the fear of the Lord in those with whom he gives this gift. And even the Messiah will be, feared, will be filled with the fear of the Lord in order to accomplish his mighty work. Now, perhaps if you're wondering at this point, like I was when, when I was studying this, why would the Messiah, why would Jesus, who is fully God, need these gifts? Great question, right? I had to settle that in my mind. Why would, we, why would he need this? Being fully God, certainly nothing could be added to him. For as God, he possessed already infinitely and eternally every single quality or perfection that there is. Yet, Jesus was indwelt with the Spirit and ministered in the power of the Spirit. So we ask, what could the Spirit of God contribute to the deity of Christ? And the answer that we must give is nothing, nothing. As God, he possesses every quality infinitely and nothing can be added. So then we ask instead this question. What could the spirit of God contribute to the humanity of Christ? And the answer, of course, is everything of supernatural power an enablement that he, in his human nature, would lack. Bruce Ware gives uh, some insight into this in his book, The Man Christ Jesus. He says, quote, The only way to make sense, then, of the fact that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit is to understand that he lived his life fundamentally as a man. And as such, he relied on the Spirit to provide the power, the grace, the knowledge, wisdom, direction and enablement he needed moment by moment, day by day to fulfill the mission the Father sent him to accomplish, end quote. Well, now that we've seen the Messiah's divine endowment for ruling, Isaiah moves to a description of the manner in which he will carry out this rule. And we see this in verses three through five, and we'll call this the, the absolute justice of his rule. Verse three. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. I want you to think about something for a second. Think about the principal function of a ruler. The principal function of a ruler is to judge, 
right? It's to judge, to judge and reign with authority. And how do rulers get their information in order to judge? Well, they rely on the sources that they have before them, which is us. They rely on man. They judge based on the information coming from their sources, the eyes and the ears of their resources, which we all know can and really in most cases is at least somewhat flawed because it is the perception of sinful man. But for absolute justice, there must be absolute knowledge which cannot come from the eyes and the ears of mankind. It must come from a king who has been endowed with divine gifts. Unlike the mere human judge who judges by what his eyes see or or his ears hear, this king will judge with his absolute knowledge. And Isaiah is speaking of much more than a new edition of a present-day monarchy. He is speaking of a radically different kind of kingship. Jesus said in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Isaiah is showing us here that this king is himself a divine person. And since he is a divine king, he will judge very differently than you and I or any judge here on earth does, right? Verse 4 tells us, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now, throughout history, the poor and the oppressed of the world have been trampled down and neglected. Not only by men, but also from rulers at whose hands they should have obtained justice. But the poor under the Messiah's rule will be judged very, very differently. Listen to Psalm 72, verses 1 and 2. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. This psalm is portraying the ideal king. It is portraying the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Derek Derek Kidner writes of of these two verses. He says, the New Testament nowhere quotes it as messianic, but this picture of the king and his realm is so close to the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 11 in Isaiah 60 through 62 that if those passages are messianic, so is this. So this king will judge the people in righteousness. And if anyone needs righteousness and the judgment of righteousness It is the poor. The Messiah will judge with absolute fairness, it tells us. This, of course, does not mean that this king will not have anything to do with those that are wealthy. What Isaiah is doing is showing that the poor serve as a symbol for all in the world that are poor in spirit. That is those who have laid aside their pride and arrogance and lofty positions and are truly, truly humbled under the conviction of their spiritual poverty before a mighty God. These are those who cry out to God for help and depend entirely on God's grace to meet their needs, no matter what they need, and have a humble and contrite spirit 
experiencing God's deliverance and enjoy his undeserved favor. Uh, Flip real quick to Psalm 86. I want to read just five verses of Psalm 86 because this beautifully, beautifully illustrates this. Psalm 86, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Such will be judged with righteousness. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 3. I'm sorry, Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are godly people who trust God for their salvation. They cry out for his grace and recognize his willingness to forgive. The poor in spirit are those who are recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy. Realize that there's nothing good in them that deserve God's love and forgiveness. And they are depending on God's grace alone for their salvation. Well, not only will he judge with righteousness and fairness, verse 4, the second half of verse 4 says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Listen, the earth also will not escape his judgment since... The earth is his. Guess what? He can do whatever he wants to with it, right? The breath of his lips and the rod of his mouth are nothing other than his word. Revelation 1.16 says, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His word is a judging word. It's a smiting word. His breath is very, very powerful and successful in accomplishing whatever he commands at a mere speaking. Just think for a moment of the power behind Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light. And what happened? Something flickered over there in the distance? No. Boom! The sun that we all see was hanging in the sky. His word has power. His word accomplishes the end for which it was designed. And what is that design in this text? To slay the wicked. You think it's going to happen? Most assuredly. Right? At the last Day of judgment, the voice of God will speak and the wicked will perish. The final description of the manner in which this branch and the Messiah will carry out his rule is seen for us in verse 5. Isaiah 11, 5. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Well, he girds himself as a warrior for the work that lies ahead of him. Now, there's lots and lots you can read all day long of different opinions as to what this belt is. Some say it was a garment which binds all the other clothing together. Others say it's a symbol of power, a sign of royalty. Well, uh, archaeologists have shown us that, that has have actually given us the answer to what this belt is. It was a wrestling belt, a wrestling belt. And it was well known in the ancient world. This belt would be worn by those that are ready to engage in a wrestling bout. One commentator said this, It is probably this conception which underlay the common expression to gird up one's loins. The object of the bout was to wrestle the belt 
off of your opponent. So regarding the Messiah as so girded, we are to understand that he is fully, fully, fully equipped for the battle ahead of him. Now, this is awesome because he doesn't come to do battle with the ordinary weapons of the world, right? The ordinary weapons of warfare, but rather he comes girded with righteousness and faithfulness. Now, scripture is full of, of all these dual qualities being applied to God. It's full of these being applied to the Messiah. It's full of these being applied to Christ as the judge who maintains righteousness. He is also the faithful one, scripture tells us. He is also the faithful one. He is indeed the righteous judge and the one who maintains, always maintains faithfulness. Revelation 19, 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. What this boils down to is this. This is the Messiah who is girded with righteousness and faithfulness and is ready at all times for the enemy, including sin and death. That has huge implications for us today. Huge. Isaiah fills God's people with the hope that the Lord, the branch, the Messiah would one day abolish death. Abolish death. He says in Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now, on this side of Isaiah's prophecy, we know that the branch, the Messiah, he's accomplished this, right? Death is the devil's most powerful, terrifying weapon against us. And at the cross, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, defeated Satan on behalf of us helpless sinners. With the empty tomb, Christ destroyed the devil's most powerful weapon. Satan, our accuser, is now, get this, powerless to condemn Christians. When Christ conquered death for us, he removed the sting of death. And because of the work of the branch, we will not be judged according to our sins. Rather, we will stand before God robed in Christ's own perfect righteousness. Listen, believers, Scripture tells us, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Christ has conquered death and believers can stand firm on this word of the branch, the Messiah, who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Join me in prayer. Our great and gracious God, no language that we can come up with here on earth has words even sufficient to give voice to our praise when we contemplate all that Christ has done for us. 
How could we ever thank you enough, Lord, for sending your own dear son from heaven to earth in the form of a lowly, common-born human baby to be our redeemer, to be our substitute? The fullness of his condescension and sacrifice, his humble obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, is beyond our mind's grasp. It makes us eager for the time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, dear Father. Heaven awaits a more suitable tribute than we are now capable of offering, and it will be our joy to fill all of eternity with unbounded praise to you. Our hearts are humbled and our minds are taken captive, but the reality that Christ left the glory of heaven to enter the world of humanity in such a humble fashion. He was born like us so that we might become like him. He, he made himself a servant to show us how to lead. He gave his life that we might live. He suffered so that we can share in his glory. We praise you for that deep wisdom. We praise you for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. His person his deity and humanity are, are united in indivisible unity so that he could die on our behalf as one of us and yet remain perfect, perfectly sinless. And now he intercedes for us as both God and man, the perfect mediator. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the living proof that you are for us. And if you are for us, we know that no one can prevail against us. So, Lord, we pray this morning that you would make these truths more precious in our sight than any of the empty pleasures this world offers. We confess to you this morning again, dear Father, that all of, etern- earthly, all of our earthly treasures are just pittance, mere dust that will just vanish Lord, we admit that the enormity of our sin is a scandal. The sheer number of our transgressions, it's just staggering. And yet, Christ took the full burden of all our sin, all our disgrace, and he stood in our place to receive the due judgment. So in response, we can only offer our highest words of praise today, Lord, knowing How utterly feeble our best worship even is compared to the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. Give us a more suitable expression of gratitude. Fill us with hope and assurance. Steady our erratic walk. Lord, we beg you to conform us to the image of Christ and help us to walk in his steps. May our lives thus honor him better than our tongues are even able to. And we ask these things in his blessed name. Amen.